Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight we have a very special episode for you. We are going to be interviewing someone who really needs no introduction. He's very well known in Mormon and post-Mormon and even heretical Mormon circles. This is the man, the myth, the legend, Rock Waterman. <laughs> That's got to be the best introduction I've ever had. Well, thank uh, you. Hello, RFM. How are you doing, Rock? Good. I'm... Uh... My biggest concern is that I might use your real name, so I keep, I've been practicing in the mirror to make sure I refer to you as RFM. I don't know if a lot of uh, your listeners know, but you and I are old friends. We talk on the phone quite frequently, and uh, so... Uh, How long yeah. have we been talking on the phone frequently about, is it four or five years now? It's got to have been. It's got to have been. You know, um, you're... Uh, your episode on the uh, the coup d'etat, Brigham Young's coup d'etat. Uh, just uh, back, just back up a second. Just for the official sure. title was apostolic coup d'etat. Thank you, thank you. I forgot it's a long title. Um, it kind of has as, a rhythm to it, but go ahead. Yeah, as longtime readers of my blog might know, I just transcribed both episodes of that into uh, blog episodes of mine, and they really, really clarified what happened to the church after Joseph Smith died. Because Joseph Smith, uh, the church, after Brigham Young took it over, became a completely different creature. And it didn't happen immediately. Uh, there, you know, what's interesting, I find interesting about Brigham Young, he tells the truth early on in many places. He tells the truth about how he was not a prophet and that he's not the legal successor to the church and all of that. And, of course, the church as it stands today relies on the myth that Brigham Young was the uh, the legal successor, because that's what they rely upon. The leaders reply upon, rely upon for their own. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm talking about Mormon stuff, and I just wanted to talk about comic books. That's what oh my goodness, no, not comic <laughs> books. We are going to totally leave the audience right off the bat. All we need to say about comics is that Marvel rules. <laughs> now, the, all I wanted to say, actually, I just wanted to touch on one thing, because you and I have talked about this. And so to the listeners, uh, RFM and I have been, uh, when we were kids, we were, um, we were uh, vigorous comic book readers. And he, he leaned toward uh, Marvel Comics, and I learned, leaned, leaned toward DC. And for some reason, there's kind of been a, 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 a feud between you know, people who say DC are the best and Marvel is the best. Anyway, what I wanted to tell you, RFM, is I figured out why I abandoned Marvel when I was young. It was, it was too re- It was too intellectual for you, I think. <laughs> well, it became, actually, <laughs> it, it, actually it, it, around 1964-65, it became um, faddish to uh, read Marvel comic books in college campuses again, whereas it was, you know, comic books were always considered kid stuff. Well, that was, here's the thing. That was about the time that I stopped reading comics. I realized I was only reading comic books from 1961 to 1965. And Marvel comics. How old were you then, by the way? uh, Nine years, nine years old to 12, between nine and 12. Okay, because I was thinking maybe you were in college. No, 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 I wasn't. Um, by that time, what Marvel had started doing was episodic. Uh, they would, they would uh, tell stories that would be um, continued in the, next, in the next issue. And 
you know, most of us comic book kids, we just, we read comics based on what was on the cover. So if, if on the cover uh, of a, a copy of Superman or more detective comics, Superman or Batman was about to have his um, secret identity exposed, that was a surefire seller for me. I was always in on that. But what, what uh, Marvel was always doing, they were having the human torch fighting with, with uh, Nemor. Namor. What's his name? The Submariner. Namor. Yeah, Namor. Oh, it's a Namor, yeah. Yeah, anyway. do you know how they come up with that name? No, how? Oh, they were sitting around trying to come up with names for this guy in the bullpen, and they're trying to come up with all these strong-sounding names. And they came up with all these names. None of them sounded right. They had Roman. Roman sounded nice and strong, but that was too obvious, so they just did it backwards. Namor, <laughs> Roman, backward. That's the source of the name. Forgive the interlude. Go on, please. Okay. Well, I, the, all I wanted to say about that was I, I was never attracted to – Marvel was always having the characters battle each other over some misunderstanding. And I just wanted to say, would you guys just sit down and talk a minute and realize you're both <laughs> on the same side? Uh, and, but anyway, I hey, wait a second. What about that recent Superman and Batman movie where they're fighting each other? Oh, I know. Death over a stupid <clears throat> misunderstanding, mister. Exactly. That was exactly what they did was they copied Marvel's formula and it doesn't work because, you know, the whole time you're watching that movie, you're just saying, would you guys just stop a minute and, and, and get to know each other because it was ridiculous. So anyway, that's why that movie failed because it it was a Marvel movie. <laughs> it abandoned the DC trope. Absolutely, and the Marvel all the Marvel movies are doing horrible at the box office. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh well, no, 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 no. But, <laughs> yes, sarcasm this early in the morning, going a little over your head. But you got it. You got it eventually. I do have one comic book store I want to tell you. I have this huge library of books about comics and it's, it's because it was given to me by a lady whose husband had cheated on her. And she told him, you come back. He's about my age, clearly, uh, you know, baby boomer. She told him, she kicked him out. She told him to come back and get his stuff or she's going to throw it away. And, uh, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And, uh, the funny thing is I would have, Wait a second. Along. Wait a second. There's a lady whose husband is cheating on her and you're in the right place at the right time. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's a longer story, but I was uh, uh, back in Sacramento. There's a bike path that goes down along the American River. Uh, well, the American River and leading to the American River are some uh, some uh, upper upper class homes where a lot of people live. And once a year, Sacramento would have this day where you could set out the garbage that was too big to uh, to put in your trash cans, you know, so people would have lumber uh, out, out on the curb and they would have uh, old stoves and couches and things. And the, and the uh, sanitation department would come by and pick everything up. So I'm riding my bike for exercise, as I always do, and I pass, uh, you know, these piles of uh, garbage in front of these homes. And a book caught my eye. It was uh, Maurice Horn's Encyclopedia of Comics. And it was on the top of a stack of uh, boxes. And so I pulled over and I look at that and there's a whole bunch of great books. And mostly it's 
more history of comics than you know actual comic books anyway woman comes out and she's carrying another box and she says you interested in that stuff? I said, yeah, why are you throwing this out? She explained the story. Her husband had been cheating with her best friend. She kicked him out. He'd been gone a long time. She kept telling him, come get your stuff, or I'm going to throw it out. And how and, old are uh, you? Oh, this was just mm, five or seven years ago. Oh, okay. So you're not a little kid on your bicycle. No, right, right. I'm, I'm riding my bike as an adult for exercise. And, uh, and so I came back with the car and just loaded up box after box of this stuff. But here's the thing. Connie laid down the law. I was not allowed to bring any more books into the house because my, I, I had turned the entire living room of our apartment into a library with rows of shelves, not just along the edges, but everything. So the, the living room was uninhabitable to her, but it was a paradise to me. So I wasn't allowed to bring any more books in. So um, I had a storage unit downstairs in the carport, and I just loaded everything into there and uh, forgot about it until I moved here. And uh, so I moved here to Idaho and uh, going through boxes and there's all these treasures. And this is what my, my office is filled with now. My, uh, the living room is wall to wall, mostly church and history books. Well, my office here is uh, comic books and books about old Hollywood and things like that. The things that I've always been interested in before I became interested in theology to the extent that I am. But anyway, this is the first time Connie's going to hear this story because she never knew, but I wasn't allowed to bring any more books in the home. So I didn't, I just put them in storage. <laughs> but, and they're still there right now. They are here surrounding me. Uh, you know, I brought, uh, we've got a friend from Canada who uh, would frequently come down to our fellowship. You know, Canada is not very far. Canadian born is not very far from here. And uh, she came into my office and she saw all these books about, you know, mostly DC. Now I've, I've got a great interest in newspaper comics too. So I've got all these big tomes, gigantic tomes about, uh, you know, comic books and, and if anybody who goes to my facebook page can see one shelf of mad magazine that's just one shelf of them but anyway um but that's it in my on my profile picture but anyway she comes in and she says what is all of this because she said i thought i thought you were a theologian <laughs> but it looks like a comic book museum in here anyway i'm getting way off topic but uh you're, you're returning to your second childhood that's you? right i am and, and 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 to be truthful i've really gotten into uh catching up on superman's pal jimmy olsen there were 134 uh issues of that and uh those were great great comic books in those days and the funny thing about sorry, for those who don't know, Superman gave his his best friend Jimmy Olsen, he gave him a signal watch. So if, you, if you're ever in trouble, you know, signal me through this watch. And so wherever Superman was, and Jimmy Olsen was in trouble, he hit the thing and then goes, zee, 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 and it could only be heard by Superman's super hearing. Superman would come down, and this is what the comic book covers were often about. Jimmy Olsen waiting for Superman with a kryptonite ray or some kind of kryptonite. He's trapped him. He's tricked him into coming so he could kill him. And it turns out that, uh, you know, he's either under the uh, influence of aliens or some other reason. But, uh, oh my gosh, there must be more than a couple of dozen of covers where he's he's signaled superman superman 
comes from some mission in outer space where he's been just to be killed by his best friend. So, <laughs> but anyway, those, those kind of covers were what, uh, what sold comics to me, you know? Well, I want to come back to that here in a second, by the way, I'm going to have to hurry you along because I think we're losing people by the droves <laughs> yeah, okay. and I don't want to have to edit too much of this. Okay. So, All right. <laughs> but here's the thing. First off, when you talk about this expansive library that you have, in your house, it reminds me of my favorite quote about libraries, and it actually comes from the Twilight Zone, not the Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone from the early 1960s, but from the remake that happened in the 1980s. Now, that remake was not very good, Mm -hmm. but there was one episode, and it had Danny Kaye in it, and I cannot remember anything about the story. All I remember is that Danny Kaye is obviously this older man who's older at the time in the 1980s, and he has an apartment. And this apartment just has all these shelves that are lined with books, right? And some guy comes in who's never met him before, comes in to meet him, comes into his apartment, looks at all the books on all the walls, and asks him this question. He said, wow, have you read all these books? And the thing that I will never forget is Danny Kaye's response. Of course I haven't. Who wants a library full of books they've already read? <laughs> a good line it's a great line okay so now i want to i'm i'm segueing here okay all right because all right. i'm and i want everybody to know in the audience okay that we're going to be talking about you history and mormonism and specifically your history with mormonism but here's the great segue here's the thing that i did not like about dc comics are you ready i'm ready it's the covers what because That's the best part well, yeah, unfortunately, it has nothing to do with what goes on in the actual comic. You, <laughs> well, have, yeah, you, you always got tricked. You spent your 12 cents and you got tricked into, into something that, oh, this isn't real. <laughs> I could not count the number of times, and it's your bringing it up that makes me think of this, that I would look at a DC comic, whether it's Batman, whether it's Superman, whether it's Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, or Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, or whatever. And there's some incredible thing that's happening on the cover. It, it just it blows your mind. How could this possibly be happening? And then I yeah. read the comic, and I get to the end of the comic, and I look back at the cover, and I said, this comic book has nothing to do with what's on the cover. <laughs> yeah. And so I, here's the segue. Are you, re- are you ready? I'm ready. Because that reminds me of the Mormon church. <laughs> <laughs> the Mormon church is a DC comic. <laughs> Because when I went out as a missionary, and when missionaries are going out today, as much as they're going out today, but with the COVID crisis and everything, by the way, we're recording this on August 14th, 2020, and they go out, they present a certain version of Mormonism to the investigator. This is what happened to me even as long ago as 1978. The missionaries came to me, they taught me a version of Mormonism, and the version they taught me of Mormonism, first off, was nice and scrubbed and polished and uh, antisepticized if that's a word, and if it's not, I just made it up, antisepticized, sanitized, right? Um, And they come and they give this to me, and really what they're trying to teach me is a certain very, very polished version of Mormonism in the 1830s and 1840s. That's the DC cover. And they (laughs) they got me to buy this DC comic based upon the cover, and then I got baptized into the church, and then I started reading the comic, and it only took me like 10, 20, 30 years to read this comic, right? because I'm a slow reader and a slow learner, apparently. But slowly, it starts dawning on me that 
the church that I got baptized into, this comic book, has nothing to do with the cover that was sold to me by the missionaries. Yeah, yeah. What do you well, think yeah. about that? Well, <laughs> and they were selling a religion that wasn't even wasn't even contained within the Book of Mormon. Now, I've, I've long, long maintained that the Book of Mormon is the source of the religion. But what they did was they adopted the Campbellite view that the whole purpose of the Restoration was to restore a, a church that existed like it did in New Testament times. You don't find that in the Book of Mormon. So, so which, which don't you find in the Book of Mormon? That the the idea that the the uh, the church today should be based on the uh, primitive church in the first century, uh, that it should be organized from the top down with leaders, prophets and apostles on the all the way down to teachers and oh, uh, right. There's certainly no uh, elaborate priesthood structure or much of any. Uh, well, as you pointed out in your, in in the your Book of podcast about uh, born again. Uh, Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon, uh, and this is what really puzzled me as a, as a young teenager reading the Book of Mormon. We would read about these episodes of essentially Pentecostal um, events, like uh, when Ammon was in the court of King uh, King Lamoni. Uh, you know, people fainting and falling on the floor and shouting hallelujah. And then we go to church and we would be told we don't believe any of that. Uh, so... Well, that's certainly true. When I when I read the Book of Mormon, in spite of the way it's read from the stand or quotes from it are read in general conference, which makes it sound as dry as uh, dirt. Mm -hmm. When I read the Book of Mormon and I'm reading Alma chapter five or whatever the sermons are and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, wow, this stuff sounds like whoever said it or whoever's represented as saying it was really full of fire, vim, vigor, and was very excited and passionate about what it was that he was saying. And then I, I hear something very different at church. And there's a very different presentation that we have at church from what it is that I read in the Book of Mormon and from what I think was probably going on with the preachers in early Mormonism as oh, well. Oh, yeah. People were on fire. Do you, do, you, do you remember? Well, let me let me preface this by talking about thing, when they were uh, uh, dedicating the, uh, the temple at, at uh, Kirtland. They all shouted the, the the Hosanna shout, and they waved their handkerchiefs in the air, and they shouted Hosanna, Hosanna. And anyway, so so when I guess they were in the modern day here, and I don't remember what they were dedicating, but Hinckley led the congregation in conference. He said everybody's been provided a white handkerchief, and so what we're going to do is we're going to do the Hosanna shout. And so he walks you through it. He says, wave your handkerchief. And all together we'll say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lord. And that's exactly what they did with that level of enthusiasm. He said, all right, ready? Hosanna. And they're waving their handkerchiefs, Hosanna, Hosanna. The whole congregation in this deadpan, boring tone. <laughs> it wasn't. In, in other words, it was not. Um, uh, I will tell for, you. Oh, it wasn't um, what uh, vigorous, excited, enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm looking for the word that, like in instinctive. It wasn't. It basically it was planned, and and here we're giving the hosanna shout. It, it meant nothing, and the angels in heaven 
probably weren't anywhere near that crowd. You well, know? it's <laughs> the angels in heaven to sleep. That's the problem. Exactly. I know, yeah. I know that we have the same thing when Mormons sing hymns at the beginning and the end of their meetings. Oh, my one gosh, in between. Yes. I would frequently, it was a running gag with me, I would go into a chapel uh, at the beginning of the meeting, they're singing the opening hymn. Maybe I'm running a little bit late. And I always instinctively, because this hymn sounds like a funeral dirge, mm-hmm. I come into the chapel. I'm looking to the front and wondering where the body is. <laughs> well, you know, we have some dynamic dynamic um, hymns that are never sung the way they should be. Everybody goes through the motions. If you ever go into a, a, a non-denominational Christian church, they're worshiping. Their music is worship, and it's exciting, and it's vibrant. Well, we've got this rule that you can't have anything but a piano and maybe a violin uh, solo now and then. But for some reason, the, the leaders— Don't forget the organ. Well, and the organ, yeah. For some reason, the leaders decided that any other instruments were uh, were inappropriate. And so we don't have—you uh, know, you go into one of these churches, and there's drums and guitar and keyboards, and the people are singing with vigor. And it's, and you, you feel something, you feel the spirit in these churches. Whereas in our, and I, I, I realized long ago that I wasn't getting anything out of my church attendance, but I continued to go because of this feeling that I should, and mm-hmm. that the Lord wanted me there. And I know now that the Lord doesn't want us there. Hey, Rock, let me just tell you this real quick, because I want to go to that point you just raised. But first, I want to tell you this joke that I heard shortly after I joined the church in 1978. Uh, did you hear the one about the streaker in church rock? No. They caught him by the organ. <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a particularly uh, light mood this morning, as you may be able to tell. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. Now, I do want to talk with you, though, because um, you talked about the fact that you went to church, that uh, you were born in the church, right, or baptized at eight. Is that yeah. right or wrong? Born in the church, born and raised. Okay. And then a time came when you stopped feeling the spirit at church or you recognized that uh, basically either uh, the church as we have it today is dead as far as the spirit goes. And if it's not dead, it's on life support. Mm -hmm. When was that? How did that happen? Tell us about it. When did it happen? For you. I think, or, or when did I notice it? You, you. I I noticed it. You know, when I was young and single, church was an exciting place to be because that's where the girls were and they had steak dances and they had steak uh, firesides and all kinds of things. So you could see your friends from, you know, Santa Ana and wherever else. I I grew up in Anaheim. And, uh, and it was just a fun place to be, and it was a social experience. But as after I got married, and you know, it's something you, you do, and you take the kids because you want to make sure your kids go to church. I ended up going out to the car. I, I'd, I'd sit through sacrament meeting because, you know, the whole family was there. But once I got the kids into their classes, I ditched, went out to the car, and I'd start. I'd, I'd just read something. I, I usually it was usually church oriented, but very often it would be dialogue or some sort of magazine, which uh, you couldn't take into the church because it was considered uh, heretical material. When very often it was not. I mean, uh, a lot of uh, the great church history that I learned, I learned through dialogue. But anyway, um, I just couldn't ab- ab- abide those three hours of boredom. And uh, I, I thought, 
man, there's just something wrong. Couldn't put my finger on it. But, you know, the, the first indication is the music. We, do, we follow this. Okay, uh, in, the, uh, in the Book of Mormon, it says that the meetings were held as the Spirit directed. And I think that's also in Doctrine and Covenants. Um, but you go into our meetings, and we have a pattern. You have the opening song, then the opening prayer, and they or it could be reversed. I can't even remember. Uh, and then you have a speaker. Then you it's have the another. song and the prayer, just so you know. Yeah, there you go. Then you have a speaker. So you go right down this th- this this pattern that's been dictated by Salt Lake City. This is how we conduct our meetings, and there's just nothing there. And I often thought it was the chorister's fault that uh, the the music was so slow, but. Uh, Often, I think it's just the people. Nobody's looking. Nobody's, yeah. Man, it's just, we're going no, through the motions. Nobody going- looks at the chorister. It is the funniest calling in the church because the chorister is really supposed to be <laughs> the person who is setting the tempo and <laughs> leading the congregation, right? But actually, nine times out of ten, if not more, in the LDS church, the person at the organ is just sitting there looking at the keys or looking at the music and the organist is the one who is determining the tempo and the chorister is the one who is just sort of following along <laughs> i think organ. you're exactly right yeah. and it was um oh who was it orson scott card who is somewhat of a card in some ways once mentioned this he said the chorister in the lds church is the one person without whom nobody will sing but nobody looks at when they're singing anyway Boy, you nailed that. Well, you go into a you go into a Christian non-denominational church, and they've got a screen up on the wall that's projecting the lyrics of a of a of a of a, an exciting song. Oh, right, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But see, our songs are not our songs are not part of our worship service. Well, we don't have a worship service, and that's the problem. the The reason to go to church is to worship, but we don't worship. We just go and we attend. And when do we ever worship? Basically, almost every gosh, every every kid who's you know every teenager who's assigned to give a talk just reads from some conference talk, uh, and so so does pretty much any other speaker. We they just copy the leaders, and the leaders are the last people you want to look to for leadership. Well, I will tell you, I agree with you, but that is of course what we look to when we look for a model of how to give a talk. We look to the leaders and how they talk in general conference, <laughs> yeah. right? And we and try that to boring tone exactly, and we try to emulate them. And the closer we can get to emulating the boring manner in which the leaders of the church talk, the better we consider ourselves to have done, and the more spiritual we are. I will tell you that. Uh, by the way, you know, church is now two hours instead of three hours. I've heard, yes. But it was three hours for the longest, longest time, for decades, of course, basically the entire time that I was a member of the Mm -hmm. church. It was three-hour block. And I came to think of church as, well, you know, church may be dry and boring and completely uninteresting, but there's a lot of it. Yeah, well, you know, they pray the same way that they've copied the leaders in, in their prayers. Well, I don't, when I give my wife a blessing, it doesn't sound anything like Connie Lynn Waterman. I lay my hands upon your head in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of it's it's nothing like that. You know, we're, we're, we're our prayers are filler and they're not they're not reaching the, the ears of God because they don't because we're just copying. Are you anyway. saying that our prayers are not like Jimmy Olsen's watch? <laughs> That's right. 
they don't instantly instantly get God's attention. Uh, that's Jor- that's very good. Well, thank very you, Jor L. Ka L. Last name Theophoric suffix. You know the drill, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to tell you this funny story though about because uh, you're talking about taking sunstone and dialogue to church and reading it in the parking lot. You probably brought it in a brown paper bag so nobody would know what it was, <laughs> but. This is, this is a story along those lines. Okay, so this is back in the 1990s. And still, of course, I'm very, very active and very faithful. But there was a lady, an older sister in the ward who had wanted to borrow a book of mine. It was a hardcover book. It was a doctrinal book. I don't remember what it was, but it had a, a dust jacket on it. And so uh, I gave her the book with the dust jacket, of course, loaned it to her. She had it for, oh gosh, longer than she should have. This is always the problem when I loan out books is I don't keep a list and I forget who I've loaned out books to and they forget that they borrowed them. Yeah, so yeah. I, I end up giving away half my library over time. But this time, uh, it was an important book to me. And uh, I remember seeing her and reminding her about the fact she had this book and had had it for some time. And uh, she gave it back to me at church, right, with the dust cover on it. And I remember I took it home. I put it back up on the shelf. And a couple of weeks later, I had occasion to pull that book off because there was something in it I wanted to look up. I knew it was in the book. I just had to find it, right? Well, I take the book off the shelf with the dust cover on it. I open it up and I start looking at it. And I'm looking at the pages and I'm looking at what's written on the pages. And this is not my book. This is not the book that I gave her. She put a different dust jacket on it? No, she put my dust jacket on a different book. Oh. <laughs> and I'm reading this, and Rock Waterman, I swear to you, it was a bodice ripper. <laughs> so she would take a book like that into church. So That's what I'm look- left to presume. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> it was pretty funny when I had to give it back to her and say, hey, uh, could I have my this real is- book back? <laughs> By the way, the reason I would read, go out of the car and read instead of just listen to the radio or whatever is because I went to church because I had hoped to learn something. And over, it took years to figure this out, but I realized I'm not learning anything. And when I stopped going to church and our Sundays were freer to actually do study, that's when I started to really learn the gospel. And, and I, it never happened during the church years because by the time you've been through that three hours, you're so tired. You just want to go home. You want to eat. The rest of your Sunday is not spent like Sunday should be spent in, in, uh, you know, now, of course, now every day is, is learning day for me. But, uh, in those days, Sunday was kind of set aside. This is the day that, that you're actually going to learn something about the gospel. But by the time you got home, you never, you, you didn't feel like getting into it. You've just spent uh, half the morning, you know, being bored out of your skull. So anyway, um, that's why Mormons are so dumb. <laughs> oh, oh, Mormons are so dumb, is it now? <laughs> Well, active Mormons. The more active you are in the church, the less inclined you are to use your uh, critical thinking skills. Uh, I found that to be true. Listen, I when, let me tell you about my fire baptism. I've touched on it a little bit. Tell us about your fire baptism, Rock. Yeah, my fire baptism, my baptism of fire. Um, 
I, we were, it was about, um, I think it was February of 2007. And Connie and I had gone to spend some time in Salt Lake City where our son and his wife lived. And uh, so we were staying there for several weeks. And I, I'd been thinking about this baptism of fire thing for a long time. Uh, and, of course, the leaders had all told us, and I think it was, uh, oh, gosh, who's the name of that guy? Packard. Packer told us that, you know, your testimony comes incrementally over time. It's not something that comes all at once. Whereas well, in the, paint it by the bearing of it, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You increase it by, by, by lying to yourself that you have it, you know. Well, not his words exactly, <laughs> Which but as, close enough. As an attorney, you know that the one thing that you don't testify of is something you don't already, that you haven't seen or experienced. But I was, as a missionary, I was, I was testifying. Here was what was really odd. I give the uh, Joseph Smith story, how he went into the woods and prayed. And then at the end of the story, I would say, Mr. Brown, I, I testify to you that Joseph Smith did see God the Father and Jesus Christ on that day. Now, I want to preface this by saying I believe that, but I was testifying of somebody else's experience. I was not testifying of something that I knew. I was testifying of something that I believed, and we should, we should get back to using that word belief more often. We should say, I believe this based on this and that and the other thing and the evidence and the things I've experienced, but we should never testify that Joseph Smith saw God the Father. We should, we should say, I believe that, 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 you know, that experience occurred. Anyway, um, so I'm having this, and I've, I've been reading in the Book of Mormon about all these, all these born-again experiences, and it looks, looked to me like the scriptures were teaching us that, that the baptism of fire is something that's wham, hits you hard and fast, and you feel it, and you know it. Well, the church leaders are telling us, it, it, you know, over time, you'll, you know, it comes to you in eventually you'll have a testimony. So I wanted to experience that. So I prayed about that now and then and, uh, and thought about it a lot. And so one particularly more uh, day, no one else was at, at home. My son and his wife were at work and Connie was somewhere else. And uh, I just decided to lay down on the, uh, on the floor and think about this. So I put a couch cushion under my head and just started to think about it and wham it was an overwhelming feeling of love acceptance um uh i was enveloped by god's love just out of nowhere and that's when i realized you know i'm really feeling something and it's nothing like I'd been told. They, they actually downplay. They downplay anything that happens in these Christian churches. That, you know, if you, have a, you know, if you want to shout hallelujah, that's just something that would be embarrassing if somebody did it one of our episodes, in one of our meetings. But anyway, I, I just, I think, I, are, can you hear me? I can. You went oh, blank there for just a second. Yeah, I, I bumped the button with my hand. So um, this was just the most incredible, real experience I had ever experienced. <clears throat> and I can testify of God's love as a result of it, and I can testify that I know God lives, and all these other things that I had been testifying falsely of because I hadn't experienced. You can't, you can't, we can't testify of something you have not seen or experienced, and yet we do it all the time in our meetings. But anyway, this was, uh, and then I started reading other uh, 
disaffected Mormons um, uh, stories of, of their uh, their baptisms by fire. And disaffected, by the way, it doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean you've locked yourself off. It means It means basically the church has cast you out. If you're a disaffected Mormon, you don't belong because they don't want you. It's not that, you know, it's not that you're a disbeliever. Well, you know, like they say, you can leave the LDS church, but the LDS church will not leave you alone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, they leave me alone. If they, if they, uh, if they cast you in apostate, you won't be visited. You won't be uh, encouraged to come back. Uh, none of this stuff because we're, we're toxic. You know, if I was just some guy that drank coffee every morning and didn't show up at church, they'd have people coming over all the time to fellowship me. But I've had three visits by missionaries accidentally. They didn't know who they were knocking on my door. Um, and they were always impressed. You know, they'd see my library, my vitamin, see my library, and we'd talk about Joseph Smith, and they they think, man, this guy is amazing. And they'd promise to come back. I said, come back. Uh, we'd make an appointment, never see him again. Because they go to their uh, they go to their PPI meeting, and they say, oh, we met this wonderful guy. He's just, wow, is he on fire? <laughs> and, and they tell him my name, and hey, don't go back there. <laughs> so so everybody's warned away from the apostates the the amazing thing is once you've been labeled an apostate well not everybody but but people like me they label me an apostate and i'm more devoted to the gospel than ever before well the problem is you are mormon kryptonite rock <laughs> yeah yeah you are Mormon kryptonite. No, I know what you're talking about. I've often thought of myself as being radioactive, or at least that appears to be the case from other active members. Not all of them, but the vast majority. Just keep their distance because they realize if they get too close, then they might catch what I have. Yeah. Isn't that odd? Because basically all they would catch is more truth, but the church doesn't want uh, their average member to be exposed to actual truth. Rock, rock. Yes. I want to take you back to this experience you just described in February of 2007, correct? Yes. Okay, so this is a huge transformative experience for you. Thank you for sharing it, by the way. So then what happens? Uh, how is it that you come within the orbit of the Denver Snuffer movement? Well, I didn't come into the orbit of Denver Snuffer. And there's no – that bothers me when I hear uh, – People Denver Snuffer movement, Denver Snuffer movement, Denver Snuffer movement. What did you say? I, I, just I, said it, I just said it three times, Denver Snuffer movement, oh, Denver oh. Snuffer movement. You because guys have you, got to come up with a name. You like to offend me. Well, it's the, call it the remnant or the fellowship movement. Basically, we just call ourselves Mormons. Um, yeah, but that's uh, not really very descriptive. Well, I, 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 I had this blog going, and every now and then somebody has said, have you ever heard of the, anything from Denver Snuffer, read anything from Denver Snuffer? And I thought, you know, it sounded like, the, uh, sounded like a name that you'd find in a character in an old Western, the sidekick, you know, the uh, <laughs> yes. Denver Snuffer, who I think Gabby Hayes, Gabby Hayes type. Right, or Walter Brennan. Yeah, right, right. So, so I finally uh, discovered some of his re- writings. Now, he was 25 years, he was teaching gospel doctrine in the most unorthodox way. He wouldn't follow the manual, he would follow the scriptures. And he was, he was teaching some remarkable stuff and, and picking up, uh, picking up uh, you know, 
um, people who, who would come to his class because he was so amazing. I got to tell you about this guy. He's about the smartest guy I know. He knows everything about the Book of Mormon, about the life of Joseph Smith, about the gospel. He's he's just uh, full of stuff. But he is considered by some people to be the guru of a movement, and he is not. He rejects that, and I reject it. And uh, he's he's a friend of mine, and I I. I would never consider myself a follower any more than he would consider himself a follower of Rock Waterman. And what he, and it, it annoys him because there's something about the Mormon mindset that if you, if you discover that the leaders of the church are not valid, then you tend to seek another leader and, Denver says, stop doing that. Stop looking for the strong man. This is the, the church. This has never been a church or never was supposed to be a church that had, that was run by leaders or somebody at the top or, or someone that you were supposed to listen to and follow or, and o- obey. So that's why I find that uh, uh, offensive. And, and, and I want to uh, disabuse anyone of that idea that there is a, such a thing as a Denver Snuffer movement. Denver Snuffer is one of us. He's a part of the movement. He is not our leader. He's not our guru. He's not our prophet. He's not the guy who's in charge. But again, Mormons want somebody in charge. And Denver keeps saying, Jesus Christ is in charge. Just go to the scriptures. And if you look at what he teaches, it's mostly uh, he's telling us to go back to the scriptures. You know what I find interesting? I think it was DNC 65 or 68. This is the Lord speaking, and he's telling he's telling the people to, referring to Joseph Smith. It's a very short chapter. He's saying, heed his words. Uh, I, I'm paraphrasing here. Heed his words as he speaketh them, as he receives them. Basically, in these two or three short verses, he's saying, heed his words, which doesn't mean obey his words or follow his words. It means take them into account, consider them. Okay, that the word heed doesn't mean, you know, it's not a commandment. It's consider his words as he receives them from me. So basically, we're to look to a prophet um, and, and consider the words that he receives from God. But what does the church do? The church is telling us all these things that leaders say, and, and people start following, uh, doing them because the, the leader said so. You remember the, the Hinckley. Hinckley just offhandedly commented about <clears throat> girls having two earrings in their ears. He didn't think it was proper to have two piercings. And the next thing, um, that was considered doctrinal. And uh, Bednar, uh, you know, Bednar was a, a fierce proponent of only one earring in your ear. God doesn't care about that, and God never told his prophet, here's the message I want you to convey to the people. One earring only. Right. Elder Bednar, for girls, only one earring in their ears. For boys, only one pickle in their pants. (laughs) I I have no idea where this is coming from, honestly. I have no uh, anyway, script here. So anyway, I, don't, I, I know I keep wandering off topic from what you're talking about. It's okay, because I want to get back to this, okay? Because I know that now that you are friends with Denver Snuffer, by the way, I'll try and avoid saying things just to upset you and irk you. It's part of my nature. It's you're, part of my nature. You're triggering me, man. Yes. You're triggering me. Being irritating. I need, being I irritating need a is, book and some cupcakes. <laughs> being irritating is my gift of the spirit. 
So uh, let me ask you it this way, okay? Because instead of talking about what you know about uh, Denver Snuffer now, can you just tell us how you discovered him? Yeah, it was basically like everybody else does. He was, uh, I think he was putting out occasional blogs or something, and he published several books of his, uh, basically the things he had taught in gospel doctrine classes. And uh, and uh, he's just a very, very, very well-informed uh, Mormon. And uh, yeah, you can learn, you can learn things from him, absolutely, you know, but there's a difference from between learning something from someone and following them. Yeah, even Joseph Smith himself told the people to stop following him. Don't stop depending so much on the prophet because you're getting darkened in your minds. And, really? Because uh, that when, sounds like a different Joseph Smith than the one I read about. In <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but if you read his actual words, he, he's basically saying, you know, every, every, every person is supposed to be his own prophet. You're, you're entitled. If, if, if we learned anything from the, from the first vision, it's that we're all entitled to, uh, to have a, a, a direct communication with God. <coughs> but... But instead, what do we do? We take this. I remember what the lesson was that uh, as a as a missionary. Okay, so you went through this whole thing, and you you taught the the first vision, and you told them that God and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith and told him which church, uh, you know, the, the not to join in the churches. When, when actually, okay, I'm going to take a digression. That's not why he went. We're taught that he went to the grove to Rock, find out. Rock, you're, you're already on a digression. Now you're going to take a side <laughs> now I'm from, take another from the digression. digression. He, wanted, <laughs> he wanted what everybody wants, what everyone in the Book of Mormon wanted. He wanted a, to, to know his standing before the Lord. He wanted a forgiveness of his sins, and that's what he went and asked for. And the only reliable— Wait a second, wait a second, okay, because— yes. I think that most of my audience knows that you have just segued from the 1838 account of the first vision yes. to the 1832 account of the exactly. first vision. I was just about to say the only reliable account is the 1832 account. That's the only one written in his handwriting. I believe the 1838 version was was uh, cobbled together by uh, probably Orson Pratt or someone else in the office. Okay, another digression. This, we well, get this hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you okay. go off, because now, okay. now you're going on a byway off a side path, off a digression. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I like do you to believe. Free. Do you believe? Because the 1832 account is pretty famous for mentioning only one being Joseph Smith saw in his vision, that person being the Lord, which is obviously Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, from the description that's given in the 1832 account. Do you believe that in Joseph Smith's first vision, he saw only Jesus? Well, I can't testify it of it because I didn't experience it, but yes, I believe it. I believe that that's the accurate account. Okay, go ahead on your, okay. your, your okay. digression. So my further digression is this. A letter comes in from the office from the editor of the Chicago Democrat named John Wentworth, and he's, he's got a friend who's writing a book about Illinois. And he wants to have a chapter about the Mormons. And so he writes this letter to Joseph Smith and says, can you give us a history and a, a short summary of what, what the Mormons are about and what they believe? Well, I think the first thing that happened was Joseph Smith says, hey, I got this letter from this guy. He needs an answer. Who wants to answer it? And Orson Pratt is probably the most likely person because Orson Pratt had already um, 
written when he was on his mission in England, he had already written an account of Joseph Smith's experience, which was secondhand or thirdhand, you know. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't spoken of in the first hand. But whoever wrote this letter, and I, I'm assuming it's probably Orson Pratt, he wrote it in Joseph Smith's voice, and he gave the account as he remembered it and as he had embellished it. And that's the, what went out to uh, Wentworth and the Chicago Democrat. Turns out, though, his friend Barlow uh, didn't include anything about the Mormons in his history. I don't even remember if he actually got around to writing the history. But we have this. Okay, can I, can, I, can I back you up? Sure. Okay, let me back you up. First off, now you're talking about a different account. Of the first, yeah, the, the 1838 1840. account. No, this is the 1842 account, which is the Wentworth letter. Okay, right, right. The 1838 okay. account is the history of the church, which, you know, Joseph Smith wrote and which he dictated. But the 1842 account, now you're saying that Orson Pratt wrote that one. And what? He, Joseph Smith asked him to write it. Orson Pratt wrote it in first. I don't know. I don't know Smith. that. But, but I, I think he just, he just, he delegated it to somebody who wants to answer this letter. Right, but but surely Joseph Smith, even if he delegates it to someone, let's say Orson Pratt, to write it in first person for Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith isn't just going to let him uh, send it off and make it public without Joseph Smith reading it and approving oh, sure. it, right? Oh, sure. Joseph Smith, by this time, Joseph had very little interest in the church. He was, he was interested in launching the kingdom of heaven. I thought you were going to say he was interested in women. No, now you stop that. <laughs> you're, you're, see, talking about diversions, you're getting off on track onto something that never happened, but, and that there is no evidence of. But however. Uh, Joseph Smith didn't like women, you're saying. He liked one woman. <laughs> okay, okay, now, honestly, I'm sorry. I'm okay. sorry. I know okay, your so, buttons. Yeah, okay. So here's the thing. Um, no, don't don't go there. Don't go there just because I. No, I'm not going to go into. We, we'll get we'll get there a little no, bit later. No, let's let's go ahead and finish your point I don't want to. I don't want to talk polygamy. You never get anywhere. All I can tell people is, look, go read, go read the, uh, <clears throat> go read the contrary, um, documentation, then make a decision. But anyway. Okay, and by the way, Rock, I'm sorry because we do have an inside joke. You and I do. I think most of the members of my audience will understand the joke. But just in case, I mean, there's probably some people out there going, what, what are they talking about? The fact is, is that uh, you do not believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. You believe that this is something that was imported into the church without Joseph Smith's consent or maybe even knowledge by other people such as Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, <coughs> who brought it in from the Cochranites out east when they served a mission there. And that this is something then that was actually instituted in the church as a practice after Joseph Smith's death, by Brigham Young. D did I synopsize that correctly? All except for the word believe. I don't believe, there's a lot of things I don't believe. What I look is, uh, I, I don't see the evidence for it, and I see the, all the evidence going the other way. The evidence is all that he, that he denounced polygamy, and that okay. he certainly didn't practice it, and he excommunicated people who were practicing it. But I did do a pretty good job of representing Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't like to... I don't like to use the term I believe very often. Um, what I like to say is I don't see the evidence of it, or I do see evidence of such and such. What I want to know is if you're going to testify that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. I, why would I testify of something I've never witnessed? That's why it's funny. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, where were we? I have no idea. I don't know where you were going. We, you're talking we, about the you're talking about the Wentworth letter and uh, Orson Pratt and Joseph Smith. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Okay, so right. he delegates. Oh, yeah. Okay, so so Joseph Smith and uh, I would. I would highly recommend one of my blog posts. It's actually a four-parter. It's uh, The Church Ain't the Kingdom is the title I gave it because the church today tells us that the church is the kingdom of heaven, and we can see through the evidence that the, the Joseph Smith was was highly interested in something that the church was only a stepping stone toward, and that was establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so by the time, uh, you know, this letter from this, Nobody, editor of a newspaper, says, hey, can you help out my friend? By the time that comes in, I doubt very much he cared anything about it. But after his death, that becomes our scripture, many decades after his death. Now, let me, that, now let me bring this up, okay, because um, I'm, I'm, once again, I'm not talking down to the audience at all. I'm just trying to help them keep up with what it is that you're okay. saying. Okay. Because the Wentworth letter, the account of the first vision which is part of a brief history, a recapitulation of the history of the Latter-day Saints that's in that letter, does not get put into our scriptures. It is what is also put in the Wentworth letter, which is the Articles of Faith yeah. that got put yeah. into our scriptures. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and you know what? I'll, I'll give you a great clue as to why the Articles of Faith didn't come from Joseph Smith. Aha, now here, here it is, because I knew this is where this was going. Not only, <laughs> okay, not only because I have talked with you before, but also because... It appeared to me that you were making, um, well, you're taking steps in order to distance Joseph Smith from the authorship of the Wentworth letter. And because the Wentworth letter has the articles of faith that did get taken out of the Wentworth letter and put in the scriptures in the Pearl of Great Price and, you know, all good primary kids have them memorized, etc., right? That there must be something in the articles of faith with which you take exception, and you believed in Joseph Smith. So yeah, now, what a, is it? It's a gigantic clue that it was written by someone from England rather than an American. It was the 12th article of faith, which says, we believe in being subject to kings, queen, presidents, magistrates, etc. No, we don't. That's, that's anti-American. We don't believe in being subject to authority figures. And so... So that, and this is the, the worst thing about it. They put it in our scriptures and everybody thinks it comes from God. And you can't justify being subject to kings or queens or presidents. But in the first place, a president, the president of the United States is not someone anyone is subject to. His job is to preside over one branch of the federal government, which is essentially 12, uh, 10 square miles in Washington, D.C. But this is why, and, and you're going to get me off on another tangent, this is why so many people uh, who didn't like Trump said he's not my president. Well, of course he isn't. He doesn't, he, he has no authority over you. He, the, no president has ever been the president of the people, and he's not even the president of the country. He is someone who presides over a branch of the government, and his, his, uh, his role and his limitations are very finite. This is why you don't see uh, uh, Trump actually sending troops into states. He knows better. He knows he's, he doesn't have the authority. And yet um, everybody says, oh, he's going to you know, be this big dictator. 
the, okay. the, one, the ones who are becoming the dictators are the ones who are telling you what you have to do. Okay, Rock, Rock, you're not going to go all posse comitatus on us, are you? <laughs> okay. Anyway, we're, we, so <laughs> back, to, back to the 1832 vision. I right, think, right. I think okay, if, let's go there. If, if he had any experience at all, it was that he saw Jesus Christ and, and, and that later that uh, that tale was embellished by others who thought it would now remember the cock and not the cock the Campbellite influence in the church was immense because the first couple of hundred members were these disaffected Campbellites and the Campbellites were looking for a church that resembled the New Testament church and they would see this word rest, restored in the Book of Mormon and they would just apply that to to their beliefs and so uh, so. The, the the first vision gets embellished that we we throw God into the mix, um, you know God the Father into the mix and all kinds of other things and uh, in other accounts uh, it's it's an angel he sees but I, I I say the only reliable one is the one that we have by his own handwriting and the irony of this is that Joseph Fielding Smith found that in Joseph's diary cut those pages out and locked them into the church vault so that no one would ever see them for only one reason. It contradicted the version that they'd already put in the scriptures. Do you think it is possible that Joseph Smith just contradicted himself and he was the author of those different versions? Oh, no. No, I don't think so. Well, I, I know that people will, they will uh, add details. But if, I've, I've spoken to people who have had actual visions. And over time, they remember, oh, yeah, there was that also. I hadn't mentioned, I had, I'd forgotten that that was in. So, yeah, Joseph, you know, I'm, I'm not saying Joseph Smith didn't have a hand in the answering the Wentworth letter. But he, he, may have, uh, he may have added a few things or he may have edited or he may have just not noticed it going out because it wasn't expected to become our doctrine it was just a letter to a, a newspaper guy out in chicago no joseph smith never in his wildest dreams thought okay i got to be careful because this is going to be considered doctrinal one day by the way can i ask you a question you may whenever you pronounce the word doctrinal you pronounce it as doctrinal is that just some kind of geographical thing or what no it's an affectation that I put on in order to sound learned, which actually ends up making me sound stupid. Now, in, in law school, there was a, a property, our property law professor. Uh, he was a great guy. I, I almost remember his name. Uh, it was like Tomain, like Tomain poisoning. It was something like that. But he was a, he was a good professor. He was very fun, very engaging. But whenever he said the word doctrinal, speaking not about, you know, religion speaking about the law because you have mm -hmm. doctrines in the law right he would always say doctrinal uh, so and I picked, picked it, up. it up from him and sometimes and sometimes in saying instead of saying defendant I will say defendant well yeah nothing I, unusual about that oh that's not unusual but doctrinal you're gonna yeah, bust my chops is. over all right mystery solved <laughs> okay. by the way what yes you're gonna have to give me a minute to here to solve the entire police controversy the police controversy yeah, the controversy about, about the police you mean what? sting and the police no, no, no you Every know the whole controversy about about bad police i what can solve that what are you talking that. about you mean in nauvoo no no i'm sorry i'm talking about present day you're killing you me smalls no we, we don't, don't want to do we don't want to do the politics rock this isn't politics this is law well, as an attorney you will appreciate it 
Should we go into it now? Won't no, take long. no, no, no. Let's not do that. I am waving okay. you off the deck right now. Waving you off the deck. Uh, because my this, audience does not want to get into politics. This isn't political. This is, this is law. That's, okay. what, that's what people always say right before they get political. Okay, I'm going to do it in two sentences, all right? Okay, I'm Police, Okay, from from No run-on sentences, by the way. What? What? No run-on sentences, by the way. <laughs> okay, this will be very short. Because, you know, the Book of Mormon was originally just one sentence. Okay. All right. <laughs> the purpose of the police are to, to keep the peace, to keep the king's peace. That was going back to the uh, uh, common law era of England. So, okay, stop right there. That was two yes. sentences. Okay, no, no, no. Okay, cut out the second one then. The origin of police is a force to keep the king's peace. They're, they're, in, in one regard, they're illegitimate because, okay, I'm going to use more than one sentence, but you got to give me two minutes, okay? All right. Okay, look, uh, everybody, everybody, if you need to go to the bathroom right now for two <laughs> minutes... No, hang on a second. Let me get my watch. Where's my watch? I got it. Okay, go ahead. I'm timing this is, you. Go. But this is godly. I'm talking about what is godly and what's not godly. So what, we, what we've what we left with, the reason people have such distasteful um, encounters with police, and over time this is just built up, is because the king, or in this case, to, in modern days, the mayor, the city council, have been using the police as their personal revenue stream. They send the police out there to collect revenue. You got a taillight out, that's going to cost you. You're, you're going five minutes so five miles over the speed limit, it's going to cost you. And that money goes into the general fund. And so it, it belongs to the king, uh, speaking metaphorically. Now, the, the true law enforcement um, method is to use the sheriff, who is the most, uh, the most powerful, the most authoritative person in, in, the, in, in the country. He has more power than the president of the United States because the sheriff is elected directly by the people. He keeps the peace, but he's not keeping the king's peace. He's not there to collect revenue for the king. He is there because he is one of the people, and the people elected one of the guys. The, the, the word sheriff comes from Shire Reeve, the Reeve of the Shire. The okay, Shire. We, we are at one minute, just so you know. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm almost done. You're this like the it. sheriff of Nottingham, right? Well, Sheriff of Nottingham was corrupt. Once you get a corrupt sheriff, you are in deep doo-doo. You know, because now the out the, the free people become the outlaws, and the sheriff becomes just like a, another king using his authority. So the sheriff of Nottingham was was wicked. But you you put me on that digression, so that doesn't count. I don't want two minutes. Oh yes, it's coming okay. out of your time. Believe me. The Shire of the Reeve. The, the Reeve was uh, was the keeper or the protector. So you got a group of people living in a village, and they elect one of them to sort of be the guy who does the uh, patrols and and uh, and keeps the peace. You got 30 seconds. Okay, right? Shire Reef became sheriff. And that's what the, and, and when you have a constitutional sheriff, like we do here in uh, the county I live in, in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, you've got somebody who protects you not only from criminals, but from the king. And his job is to keep you, to protect you from the governor and the governor's crazy decrees. So that's all I had to say. If, and, if, and your point being? The point being, abolish the police as they currently exist and go back to 
so you want to abolish the police in the form that they are in, which is the uh, which is the uh, militant arm of the government, and you go back to a situation where the sheriff, the keeper of the peace, is in directly under the control of the people themselves. Well, all I can say is I'm glad you weren't getting political on us. Well, I wasn't. You know what a horn book, you know what a horn book is, but for the, for the benefit of the reader. Yes, but let's not get personal. (laughs) For the benefit of the leaders, a horn book is a book written by an authority in one area of the law. And it gives a summary and citations and it's, it's like a handbook on, so you'll have a horn book on contracts. There's a great horn book on sheriffs called a treatise on sheriffs, constables, and coroners. It was written by a fellow named Anderson back in 1840 or 1941, I think it was. And he explained how the, if, if the president of the United States wants to come into your county and you don't want him here, the sheriff can arrest him and he, he has the power to arrest all the secret service agents for stepping foot in your boundary. Okay. You don't have rock, rock. I'm giving what? you the, the timeout sign here. Okay. All right. I know you can't see me, but I'm like the referee in a football, a football game. We're doing a timeout here. Fair enough. Fair I enough. want to get to the horn book that uh, Denver Snuffer wrote on Mormonism eventually, but actually you're, you're with Denver. Which one is that? Denver. Oh you're yeah, not, of course. And I, I'm actually going to change that because I don't want to go there on second thought <laughs> okay. where I want to go. Cause we only have like an hour left. What I I want to go is the fact that you have now achieved the status through your blog, which is very popular, at Plug Now, Pure Mormonism, right? Yeah. Pure Mormonism is the name of your blog, and you've done tons and tons of blogs, not so many recently, but you've done tons and tons of very influential blogs. In many ways, you have popularized and spread the message of Denver Snuffer far and wide, and in some ways, I think of you as Sidney Rigdon to Denver Snuffers, Joseph Smith. <laughs> well, uh, interesting you should say that. Interesting you should say that because um, as uh, I, I wrote in my blog, as I was preparing to, we were preparing to move from Sacramento to Sandpoint, Idaho. I, I said, uh, haven't you heard? Sandpoint's the new Zion. Well, there was an, a letter issued by the church to the local authorities here to be on the lookout for an influx of apostate Mormons, probably um, probably uh, polygamists, who were led by Denver Snuffer, and their, the, first, the first presidency was a guy with long hair and a beard. And so just be on the lookout. Was for that you? Guys. Yeah, me. So, well, how do you, uh, Sandburg, Idaho, is that, in the, that's in the panhandle, right? Sandpoint, yeah. Sandpoint, I, was Idaho. Was, I was told it was read from the pulpit in, in, in either our state conference or one of our wards here. Well, how are they going to tell the apostate Mormons from the skinheads? <laughs> well, we have long hair. Oh, okay, there you go, because that's skinhead <laughs> central, right? Yeah. Where you live. Uh, no, no, not at all. In fact, I've heard that. And you know what's uh, okay? Here's a here's another story you've got to hear. There was a a letter that came, uh, a flyers that appeared several years ago in Sandpoint, uh, talking about how uh, keep North America white. You know, it should be a place only for whites. And at the bottom, there were caricatures of Jews, Mexicans, blacks, and. Uh, Maybe, maybe it was just those three. You've got to see this thing because the no skinheads. But no skinheads were handing those out. Well, nobody knows where they came from. But let me tell you why I think they were 
they were distributed by someone on the left trying to cause. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> okay. So it's skinhead. It's not skinheads who are doing this. It is. Um, we don't have skinheads up here. It, it's people on the left trying to do it to give the skinheads a bad name. Yeah. And, and here's why. When you look at the bottom, there are these caricatures. They're drawings. So the drawing of a Mexican is a, a guy with a, uh, sombrero, you know, mustache, yeehaw, you know, and, and the Jew is a hook nosed with a, uh, a yarmulke and the black guy, the black guy is African with big lips and earrings and a stretched, a stretched neck. Now who does that? Real true white supremacists don't, don't have this idea that this is what these minorities look like, but what it is is somebody who wants you to think it comes from from a white supremacist they say oh this is the way they look at blacks and jews and mexicans so it was funny it was oh. just funny but anyway it got the uh, you know the city council was concerned about it and bit in the paper about it but it's 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 just silly well let me just suggest this idea to iraq okay okay it's just possible that skinheads don't need anybody to give them a bad name right and there aren't that many of them anyway, and uh, they're not up here. They're out in the uh, what's the left is down in the south. But most most true white supremacists have died off. You just don't see it. There's just these people don't exist. They're a phantom. They're a they're a boogeyman created by the left to say, oh, you got to be careful. There's white supremacists everywhere. Well, I don't. Well, I want you to know first off, I don't for one second think that you are a white supremacist or that you have anything to do with them, even though I'm concerned about why it is you're saying that you know what a true white supremacist would do. <laughs> oh, oh I've, known, I've known many. I've known okay, many. So you've I've known read, many. And I've read their writings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've, well, I've, known, I've known a handful, but this was, gosh, 30 years ago? Oh, okay. They're dead. They're okay, dead, they're man. dead. These yeah. are dead. Okay. Um, so... Let me just put it to you. Let's go here, okay? Because you're talking about your long hair, your beard. Because I remember that when you got excommunicated, there was uh, front page news. Was it the New York Times that you appeared on with this picture? Yeah. Of it was a yeah, profile picture. That was before picture. the excommunication, actually. It was before, but it was pending, right? Yeah, they were featuring me and a couple of other guys because we were, uh, we were dissatisfied. Uh, I think my, the key thing I said is, we're not trying to change the church. We're just trying to get the church to obey the doctrine. Which sounds like you're getting them to try and cha try and change the church. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so you're the, saying we're not trying to change the church. We're just trying to change the church. Well, the the whole point of the, the church was, I think the writer of the article quoted the church as saying, you know, members don't have uh, the authority to make changes in the church. Who's trying to do that? Okay, but I do want to get back to your picture because I love the picture. It's probably the best picture you've ever taken. I haven't seen all the pictures that you've ever taken, but it was such a good picture. And I remember looking at you and thinking, uh, you know, you kind of look like Jesus in that picture with a white, I think you had a white shirt on collar, maybe even a tie profile. There's almost like a little halo effect. Oh, the profile. That's the one in the New York Times piece. Yes, you look just absolutely beautiful. You look like a cross between Jesus and Dennis Weaver. <laughs> You know what I'm right. talking about, Dennis That's Weaver, right. McLeod? I do look like Dennis Weaver in that shot. Yeah, I thought that was really uh, – the, they sent they sent a stringer photographer out to Sacramento from the Bay Area to take some pictures. And he take, took a bunch of shots, and oddly enough, they always they always show the weirdest shot. And here's something designed to – you know, he, he actually wanted me to hold 
hold the scriptures in front of me. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. Cause, That'd be uh, like a Donald Trump shot in front of the church. Actually, it was going to be more like that uh, Joseph Smith portrait where he's standing in front of the, uh, the Nauvoo Temple. temple. The know? Nauvoo Temple, right? I, I can't remember which one. It's a temple. Uh, yeah. At any rate, um, you know, I didn't want to, to be painted as somebody who's the leader of a movement. Or something, and that was what was going. So anyway, here's this uh, this portrait in shadow. It's kind of weird. I've it's never beautiful. used that. If I've any, never used that for one of my own. If any photographer could take a picture of me to make me look as good as you look in that picture, that photographer would deserve a Pulitzer. Yeah, but what was it saying? That picture was saying, "Here's a holy man." <laughs> 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 oh. Yeah, so I didn't really care for it. Or McLeod, did, thirty years later. You did take one that I that I did use, and it was in front of the uh, in the background. You can see the faint outline of the sign of the church. We took these photos in front of uh, my local stake building, and you know you can see the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, I'm standing in front of that, and okay. that was a good. So picture. it's like you are Joseph Smith standing in front of the temple. Well, you can't really see if if you remember, you know what that that big sign is, but otherwise. Yes. So here's a question for you. Okay. At this time when the plans are being laid against you um, and you're getting excommunicated and you're getting all the notifications, your bishop comes by because I remember that you're not alone in this. I think Kate Kelly got excommunicated around the same time as you. What year was this? 2000 and she was excommunicated later, I think. Okay. But was it what year? Oh, this is 2014, I think. 2014 because Denver had been excommunicated. I think September of 2013, right? I can't even recall. I don't okay. recall kicked him well, first. Off the top of my head, I think that's around the, the area. But you're you're excommunicated after, and I know you got a visit from your bishop initially with the, the nice letter and everything to the, yeah, the meeting, ultimatum the Council of Love. The ultimatum. But, and he was before we get to that. Before we okay. get to that, because I know you're gonna right. say it. Okay. All right. Because right at this time when it's starting to, you know, appear in the New York Times and the um what the uh the LDS church is gearing up again for a repeat of the September sixth from 1993, so now it's 2014 or 15, they're gonna do the same thing again, same kind of thing. And they're starting to put other people's heads on the chopping blocks and announcements have been made about UK Kelly and John DeLynn. Although John DeLynn's got put on hold for another year before he was finally axed. But this is coming out again and it's looking like all these people who live in all these different areas are all of a sudden now having church action against them. It looks like it's being directed from the top, it looks like this is not independent local leaders making these right. decisions, and all of a sudden, just coincidentally, they're all happening at the same time, just like back in September of 2000, oh, excuse me, 1993. And, and the church had a, a spokesperson who was Allie Isom. She was a young lady. Yes, yes. She went around, very sweet, very sweet voice, and she was uh, being interviewed, and she talked about how, no, absolutely not. This is not something that is coming from church headquarters. These are independent decisions being made by <coughs> leaders because they're being moved on by the Holy Ghost to excommunicate these sons of bitches. Okay, not an exact quote. <laughs> not an exact quote, but that's the general gist of it, right? I wanted to ask you about um, this question, uh, and this is, a, this is a big one, obviously, and the question is, who's directing all of this? Who's directing... The church statement is very clear. It says, local leaders... Absolutely. Have the responsibility to clarify false teachings and prevent other members from being misled. Decisions, still quoting here, are made by local leaders and not directed or coordinated by church headquarters. 
So the letter that Kate Kelly received, the letter that John DeLynn received, letters, I should say, were not directed by church leaders at the headquarters in Salt Lake City. No. The determination around actions, process, timing, those are all made at the discretion of the local congregant leader. But, but, your story revealed something different going on. Take it away. Yeah, well, my, my bishop inadvertently spilled the beans, and he got in trouble for this. Uh, he called me in. We're, we've been very friendly, you know, and he says, oh, man, I just really hate to uh, to be the guy that has to tell you this, but the, general, uh, the uh, regional authority told our stake president that you need to get an ultimatum, either stop blogging, um, retreat, re- retract or, or, or leave the church, you know, voluntarily resign. So basically I was given the chance I could stop blogging or I could resign. I said, and I was laughing. I said, well, I'm not going to resign. And he says, well, he says, I hate to do this. I, 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 he even told me how he had an argument with the state president. He told the state president, you got to, you got to break this news to him. It's not my job. And the state president said, well, you know, him better, you know? So, so, and, and I later learned that the uh, name of the uh, regional representative was Smith. Now, regional representatives, if you look at what the church hierarchy and and what they actually say, they operate directly under the orders of the 12. So this regional representative didn't come out of nowhere and say, hey, you guys got to do something about this guy. He got the orders from on high. So anyway, um, yeah, Bishop Kelly, Kelly Timpson was his name. He just, he just said too much. <laughs> so he wasn't supposed, because it's all supposed to come locally. It's supposed to be the actual state president who says, you know, we're getting complaints from the members. Well, we haven't got any complaints from the members. You know, nobody in the ward knew that I know of even knew I was blogging. So I know I've got a question for you, uh, but it's, it has a little bit of a buildup. And the buildup is this, is that it is very obvious to somebody who's paying even the smallest bit of attention that what is going on is that in many cases, I'm not going to say in all cases, in your case, probably in John DeLynn's case, probably in my case eventually, there are complaints that are being made to uh, different people in church leadership, and then uh, it arrives at critical mass. And what for whatever reason, a certain degree of popularity, a certain degree of um, acidity in the comments or criticalness in the comments that you are making uh, comes to the attention of church leaders and they figure something's got to be done. So they pass it down through the chains of authority and from the 12 to the 70 or maybe just from the 70 to the regional rep, from the regional rep to the state president and then for the state president to the bishop, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens. And it's something that is organized from the top, but it goes through all these different chains because first off, that's the way the church works. And second off, it's to give different levels of plausible deniability and buffering from having anything to do with this decision on the top. Now, here's my question. Oh, actually, there's a little bit more to the backup, which is obviously in your situation, one of the problems with this is that they're not dealing with professionals, okay? They're dealing with amateurs. And your bishop was an amateur. He actually believed what it was he was taught growing up as a Mormon about you're supposed to be honest. 
in all your dealings with your fellow man. And he spilled the beans to you. That's what I mean when I say he was an amateur. Uh, he didn't yeah, follow yeah. his directions to keep you in the dark and say, oh, this is my idea. I came up with this idea myself. Nobody told me to do this, or at least not mention it, right? Well, by the way, Denver, Denver Snuffer, his state president, had a file that was given to him, said, you know, I'm supposed to do something with this. And he didn't want to. So they waited. Uh, they released that state president. They put a new state president in. But this file was given. The state president said, I got this, this from, uh, what's the name, Russell Nelson who at the time was an apostle and head of the, the, the Mormon Stasi, you know, which was the, the strengthening uh, church members committee. Strength, yeah. Yeah. Strengthening the church members, which is basically their way of saying, we got to keep, we got to keep the, uh, the poisonous truth away from the members. Or, right. Yeah. Right. And by the way, I have a file. I have a file at the strengthening <laughs> church members committee. I know because I called the general authority uh, who is in charge of that, uh, committee, or at least in charge of my file. It may take one in person just for my file alone. I can't imagine how thick it is by now. His name is Elder Timothy Dykes. And I spoke with him on the phone. I think this was about a year ago, maybe a little bit more. A very pleasant person, but I did confirm that they do have my file there at the um, Strengthening Church Members Committee, or at least a file that they think is mine. And oh, at this point, I'm sorry. I know that the Strengthening Church Members Committee monitors this podcast, so they will be listening to this interview. So I wanted just to do a shout out to Elder Dykes. Hi, Elder Dykes, because I know oh. he's listening and he'll appreciate that. <laughs> oh, no, now they're going to find out about me, too. Yeah, but you're already, you're dead meat. You've been stinking <laughs> in the sun. You've family. been excommunicated so long now. But ta- but I know we you've talked about your excommunication and the process itself. We've got about 40 minutes later. Uh, 40 minutes left, excuse me, of tonight's program. And so I'm not sure I want to go into that because that would take up the rest of the program. Yeah, and it's already and out there. You've already talked about that a great deal. The main thing I wanted to stress was, yeah, this was orchestrated. This hit on you was orchestrated at a high level. Oh, the question I wanted to ask you is, why is it that you think the church goes to such lengths as to distance the leadership from these orders to excommunicate certain members such as yourself. Why do they well, do pure, that? It's pretty simple. The, the scriptures say that they can't, that all, all, uh, all church discipline must originate at the local level. So if, uh, um, uh, for instance, if somebody is a serial adulterer, then uh, they, they are, you know, so the city isn't going to weigh in on that. That's the job of the local leader to purge such a person from the church, either withdraw the hand of fellowship. And I'm not talking about somebody who commits adultery. I'm talking about somebody who won't repent. You know, uh, you got somebody like John Bennett Cook in the, uh, uh, John Cook Bennett in the early church, who was just constantly, um, uh, fiddling around with young girls and telling them it's okay, Joseph Smith says so, you know. And so he was excommunicated for that. And he blubbered and apologized and confessed that Joseph had had nothing to do with it. And then a little while later, he just got, it just, he started stewing about it and he decided he was going to turn on the prophet and uh, and claim, yeah, it all came from him. Nonsense. But there was no evidence of that. But anyway, I'm getting off on that digression that I promised not to get off on. But that's that's why they do. And, and here's another. In, in DSC 2080, there's a verse that says, all, all uh, 
I'm paraphrasing. All discipline must be conducted according to the scriptures. Well, they don't do that. They still haven't told me what my sin is. What sin did I commit that caused my excommunication, that caused me to be labeled an apostate? They won't tell me. I've asked them. You know, they won't tell me. What did I do? What, what, what sin can you find in the scriptures? That I'll I've tell you. I'll tell you. You ready? Okay. Yeah. You criticize the leaders of the church. Yeah, but see, there's no, there's no sin of that in the, the scriptures. In fact, Joseph Smith said something very interesting. He told, talked about a woman who, uh, who had a bone to pick with him, and, and she was really angry with him. And, and he said, well, let's go take a walk. Tell me about it. And she Wait a second. Wanted, Wait a second. Joseph yes. Smith and a woman, and the woman has a bone to pick with Joseph Smith. Okay. Ha, and now ha. he says, let's go take a walk. This is a family show, Rock. Anyway, he's telling about this story. This woman was critical of him, and he says, and he's telling as he's telling the story. He said, "I, I welcome when somebody has criticism because I might be doing something wrong. I might have might be an error, and I want people to tell me if they have a problem with me." That's not the way the church is run today. We're not allowed to. Uh, by the way, can I just plug a particular blog post of mine? It's called Evil Speaking of the Lord's Anointed. Is this the one where you have a mock-up of President Russell M. Nelson in a devil outfit? No, I don't remember where that is, but it's out there But somewhere. you did that, right? Oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, I He's think that's worked. where you went over the line. <laughs> He's wearing that. Yeah, that's in fact it came shortly after that. That's the devil outfit that uh, that was worn by. Oh, come on, what's his name? He was on John Saturday Lovett. Night Live years ago. John Lovett, chubby guy. John Lovett. Yeah, yeah, John Lovett. Thank you. And it's, uh, the costume itself is funny, but we've got uh, a friend of mine made it for me, and uh, he's got he's got Russell Nelson standing at the pulpit dressed like the devil, and it's hilarious. So anyway, well, some people apparently didn't find it that humorous. <laughs> But let me get back to let me specify if you want to if you want to uh, if you're listening out there and you want to give your friends a taste of what this blog is about and what's wrong with the church and uh, and where it needs reforming the modern church uh, is this piece called evil speaking of the Lord is anointed is I think ideal for that it walks us through what 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 all that means and then uh we we see how the lord's anointed are uh oh and there's another one i'll plug called did the lord actually anoint the lord's anointed well here's part of the problem as i'm seeing it rock is that i've read these uh blog posts by the way you are an excellent blogger you are a wonderful writer you have a capability in writing to be both folksy and yet also uh, clear in what it is you're saying and interesting to read. Not something you find all those things in one writer. You're quite gifted, I think. Thank you. Would you like to write the preface to my book? <laughs> if you pay me five hundred dollars. Another inside joke. So I won't make that much. You know how much money I made on my book? I, I wrote a book for those who are new. It was called uh, what, what to Expect When You're Excommunicated. I made a total of six hundred thirty-seven dollars. And it was a bestseller in Amazon under Mormonism. So that just goes to show um, bestsellers yeah. don't, don't necessarily well, sell you, a whole lot. You need an agent is what you need. <laughs> yeah, so that, somebody else to pay, right? Yeah, so if I were your agent, I could get like 10% of that $630. Yeah. No, seriously, <laughs> though, uh, I'm going to bring this up, okay, which is the inside joke about when you said 
to me, when I write a preface to your book and I said, if you give me $500, you were actually asked by Brian Hales to write a preface to a book that he was yes. putting together. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yes. He wanted, he wanted to, and uh, he wanted a, a, like a scholarly or academic examination of what he called the Denver snuffer movement. Right. Uh, and he was collecting essays from a bunch of different scholars to put uh -huh. in a book. Basically he's serving as the editor. I don't know if he was planning on writing yeah, a paper yeah, himself. He was, he was serving as the editor. I don't think it's, materialized or if it's going to i i wrote the thing and he wanted something different can we just back and, up just a second i just want to lay more a little bit more groundwork for this story because i think it's fascinating and that is this um that it's brian hales for crying out loud and if he's going to be putting together a book about denver snuffer and the movement the remnant movement okay see here i'm being respectful and everything and the remnant movement, not the Denver snuffer movement, the odds are it's probably going to be something less than unbiased. And it's probably going to be a bit of a hit job in some ways, or at least disagreeing or showing why it is that Denver snuffer's wrong and everybody who's following him are mindless idiots, right? Yeah, I, I assumed. Or at least out of the way. And so, but Brian Hales calls you and tells you about this book he's putting together and what it's about, and asks you to write the introduction. Yeah. Well, I, I consider Brian, Brian Hales and I are friends, even though we have major disagreements on the topic of polygamy. In fact, I, I've told him, your books prove, uh, when, if, when, if anybody looks at the footnotes, because he's very thorough, he includes footnotes of when, this, when we first heard the story of uh, the angel with the flaming sword appearing to Joseph Smith and commanding him to make Emma permit him to have polygamy, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you look at these footnotes and you look at the dates like 1889, it proves the point that all this stuff came later, that this is just rumors and myths made up by guys who wanted to justify their own practices. But I'm digressing. Yes, you uh, are, but I'm going to bring you back. Okay. Uh, so would you tell the audience the story about how it was that Brian Hales reached out to you, what he wanted you to do with this introduction, and what happened as a result? Well, he wanted an introduction. Uh, he wanted an introduction about a book, uh, what he called the Denver Snuffer Movement. And the main points I made in that book was there is no such thing as a Denver Snuffer Movement. And I explained where where it ro rose from and what other other people in this movement have said. And it's basically uh, uh, an impromptu. Uh, this is like the Lord laying his influence on a whole lot of people at one time and Denver Snuffer is one of us. He's and 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 this this awakening that the Lord has has created is coming from all kinds of different directions. Uh, let me tell you something. Every now and then uh, there's there's a remnant fellowship movements all over the country, all over the world actually. And uh a, a large one is in Boise, and they've uh, held a couple of conferences, so everybody's invited. They invited Denver Snuffer to speak, among other people. That contributed, unfortunately, to the uh, view that Denver Snuffer is Denver Snuffer's movement because he's the keynote speaker. But no, he'll he'll come and he'll speak if invited, but he doesn't. Uh, you know, he doesn't ingratiate anyway. So the whole thing about the uh, I wrote a quite lengthy piece, and I think eventually I'll cleaned up and uh, make a blog post out of it because the point of it is there is no Denver snuffer movement. There's a general awakening among 
Mormons that things are not as they should be. And if you, if, and we, we go back, if you go back to the, if you take your doctrine from the Book of Mormon and the teachings of the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants, you'll find that you're looking at a church vastly different from the church today. There is no, Joseph Smith and God were adamant that the 12 apostles were to have nothing to do with the governing of the church. And what are they? They're the governors of the church. Yeah, all 15 of them now. 12 yeah. have become 15. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, the, the church did a lot of uh, explaining about how they chose, how, how uh, President Nelson became the president of the church, and no, nowhere in there is any discussion that God ordained or called him to it. It's all about the 12 prayed about it, got a good feeling. Well, yeah, of course it's a good feeling. Well, I, I've written a, a piece showing the, uh, the evolution of, of how all this happened, because after Brigham Young died, the 12 apostles got together and said, well, now what do we do? We sure don't want to, we don't want to pick another one to be the president because uh, Brigham Young wound up, you know, being an autocratic dictator. So, so they decide, all right, let's just go back to what jo- what Brigham had originally proposed after the death of Joseph Smith, and that was that the church should be run by the 12 apostles. And in actuality, that wasn't the proposal. The proposal was, we'll, we'll, <clears throat> we'll, set, we'll set up the 12 apostles as a group to help us prepare to leave Nauvoo. That was what it was about. It wasn't about running the church. It wasn't about replacing Joseph Smith. But anyway, over time, Brigham decided he'd like to be president after all. And so he, he kept Wilfred Woodruff awake for two days until uh, talking him into this until he get Woodruff to propose that Brigham Young be elected president this was it in uh in uh winter winter's quarters. quarters and at the time december the other seven what winter's quarters december 1847 yeah. right but well, let me let me let me make my point here at okay. this time the other apostles were already in utah getting getting things started so there wasn't there weren't any uh any members of the 12 to resist and so Woodruff proposed it to the members who are still at winter quarters. And they said, yeah, sure, why not? And they voted uh, to make him president. And that's it. it he was never, uh, he, and he himself admitted he wasn't the prophet. So anyway, but the, but, the point I'm but, getting Rock, Oh, is there, I'm sorry, because I do want to get to this point. But you know that there was an earthquake and the voice of God was heard saying, make <laughs> Brigham Young the president of the church. There was an yeah. earthquake and everybody came running over to Orson Hyde's house where it was going on, remember? And he yeah. said, what's going on? We so, There's this great earthquake. And they said, it's okay. God is just telling us to make Brigham Young the president of the church. Yeah. You remember that story, don't you? Yeah. And what's funny about it is there's an earthquake and people are going to run over to Orson Pratt's house. Yeah. Why? Obviously, they knew where the epicenter was. <laughs> now, Rock, I've got to ask this question, Okay. Okay. I think both you and I would agree that the story about the earthquake and the voice of God in December of 1847, winter's quarters, Brigham Young's supposed to be the president. Yeah. That's a bunch of malarkey. Right. That never happened. It was made up after the fact in order to justify Brigham yeah, Young. It wasn't even, it wasn't even published at the time. Right. Years later, they said there was an earthquake. So here's my question for you. Granted the fact that we've got a miracle here that we both agree never happened. It was made up after the fact in order to strengthen the claims of leadership, okay? Mm-hmm. Do you ever wonder whether any of the miracles that are reported uh, 
occurring to Joseph Smith, like say the first vision even, whether those are a similar kind of thing that they never really happened, but were made up after the fact in order to justify claims of leadership? Well, I'm inclined to believe what Joseph Smith wrote about his personal experience, but I, I like we talked about earlier, I'm not inclined to believe anybody's embellishment, you know. Okay. Okay. I was just wondering, uh, because frankly, that does impact how I view other things. In other words, if I see an example of something happening over here, then it seems much more likely that the same kind of thing at least could, I'm not saying it did. Okay. But some, the same kind of thing could happen over here under similar circumstances. And then when I project it back to even new Testament times where people are talking about a miraculous feeding of a whole bunch of people from a few fish and a few loaf of bread and thousands of people get fed. I start looking at that and saying, Hmm, you know, I wonder if that, is kind of like the story of the earthquake and the voice of God about Brigham Young becoming president. And then unfortunately, I even have to extend it to in intellectual honesty, trying to be honest with myself. You understand, Rock. I'm actually sure. serious here. I know I'm changing things up on you. But then I have to look at the resurrection stories of Jesus Christ. And I I start wondering whether the same thing is going on there. Have you has that thought ever even crossed your mind? Oh, always. Um, my big, my hot button is critical thinking. You, and, and critical thinking essentially means checking yourself and ask, wondering, could I, is there a possibility I could be wrong about this? So here's what you do about this. You, the question is, okay, so uh, looking at the question of the loaves and fishes, if you really want to know, you pray for an answer. You know, uh, you're going to get that from God. You're not going to, you're not going to get, uh, um, it's clear to me that the experience that, by the way, the baptism of fire made me infinitely smarter. I mean, and that's what the Holy Ghost does. The Holy Ghost, we think of it as emotion. And yes, emotion was involved in that because the emotion of love was overpowering. But intelligence is what the Holy Ghost brings with it. And I got smarter after that episode. I just, I, I became more able to think clearly and to be critical of my own thoughts and assumptions and i've i've met, i've often said that my blog is an act of repentance i'm repenting about the things i used to believe that simply turned out not to be true i want to i want to plug a, i want to plug now, a second yes, I, I want you i'm, I'm going to want you to plug it here but um so your blog is repenting for things that you believed before which you found out were not true yeah do you think it's possible that there are things then that you believe now that in the future you will find out were not true? Sure. You always have to be checking yourself. This is why I'm very careful not to say, I know this. I testify of that. I don't know what I have not experienced. I can, ex I can testify to my, my baptism of fire because I experienced it. I mm -hmm. cannot testify of Joseph's baptism of fire, but I can say I believe it based on the fact that, number one, I've had that experience, and number two, everything that he taught tells me he's not an autocrat. Okay. By the way, you say autocrat like it's a bad thing. Well, yeah. That's supposed to be funny, too. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Now, look, we've got 20... Five minutes left. And I want you to do this plug that you want to do for another of your blogs, right? It'll probably be the one about tithing. Okay. I don't Can know. Can I say this first? Your, your interview with uh, John DeLynn, seven hours, it was great. It was entertaining. It was interesting. And I realized, man, I should have, uh, I should have gone longer. And so I want you to go another six hours at least here. With you? We'll just, 
Yeah, with me. We'll just keep this going. Anyway. You know, I have no doubt that you could keep this up for six hours. I have a question <laughs> as to whether I could keep it up that long. <laughs> well, let's find out if there's if there's enough uh, feedback. Maybe we can do it again because I have a whole lot of stuff I want to talk about. I tell you what, let's let's do that. Let's put it out to the audience, see how they think about this episode and whether they would like you to come back and give it a round two, okay? Yeah, so, it, may be, it may just be that I'm not interesting to listen to, but I, I've got things that I wanted to touch on that uh, I think are interesting. So, Oh, I think you're very interesting. It's like Shakespeare writes about Cleopatra. Age cannot wither her nor custom stale her infinite variety. <laughs> So now I'm being compared to Cleopatra. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want you to make this plug. And I also want you to get into, so we wrap this up here um, in now 22 minutes, um, your relationship with Denver Snuffer and what's going on now in that Denver Snuffer non-movement. Denver often calls me, which is um, interesting because, you know, a lot of people think he's a big wig and you got to get past that. And Connie said, you know, I think the reason Denver likes you is because you don't hold him in awe as other people do. I mean, we have people within the movement. Okay, I'm going to tell you a couple of really crazy things. All right, Denver gave a talk, and he talked about Zion and what, the, the, you know, Zion is something that the Lord will bring and that it's up to us to be prepared and to also bring it. And he says, look, Zion can be started with only two or three families. Okay, that was a talk he gave years ago. Recently, I've heard, and this is a hoot, somebody has said Denver Snuffer is going to select the first three families to start Zion, and he's going to buy the land <laughs> that Zion's going to sit on. And, uh, I, I ran this past Denver, I said, man, you poor sap, you just can't get out from under this stuff, can you? He says, yeah, I've just had to learn to ignore it. You know, he, he spent a lot of time telling people, stop following me, knock it off. And now he just, it's just, and this is people who are in the in in the remnant movement not a lot of them but there are there are pockets of uh everybody wants somebody to follow that's the thing and denver says you have somebody to follow he's jesus christ but they they want somebody on the earth to tell them what they're supposed to do but anyway that was a hoot oh oh here's another one um the latest word is that denver has ordained two guys these are married men and i know them um to go over to Israel and preach the Book of Mormon for three and a half years. And these are going to be those two prophets that are found dead in the street or whatever that. I bet everybody's prophecy. lining up for that job. <laughs> yeah. Well, he called two guys. Now, Talk I about a suicide mission. I want to stress, this isn't true. <laughs> he did not do this. He doesn't ordain people to do things. He doesn't do that sort of thing. Now, I got to tell you about this wonderful edition of the Book of Mormon. It's called the uh, the stick of Ephraim in the hand of, you know, a stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim. And I I got a copy of this. What it is, it's, it's a, uh, it's translated by Hebrew scholars. So even the names of many of the characters in the Book of Mormon have more uh, Hebraic names. I just sat down and started reading the introduction and I Rock, rock, to, rock, rock. What? What are you talking about? I'm sorry, it's, because okay. you've got this book and I, I'm kind of lost. You're saying there's a okay. book that's a retranslation okay. of the Book of Mormon? It's, it's a translation of the Book of Mormon for the Jewish people. Okay. And, is, is Denver Snuffer involved in this? No, no. Please Again, stay with, 
Can we stay with Denver's number? <laughs> okay, but I got to say this. I got to say okay, this. Okay, okay. So just reading the introduction, I began to weep. And I realized I'm Jewish. My, my, mother, my mother's people are Jewish. So I, I'm from Jewish stock. And uh, it just hit me. And uh, my gosh, it, it's my favorite, my favorite edition of the Book of Mormon now. By the rivers and, of and Babylon does, where we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Mm-hmm. What what it what it has done is replace words that are familiar to to Christians with the words that would have been familiar to Jews and and Israelites. And anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and you can find it on Amazon. It's called "The Stick of Joseph in the Hand of Ephraim." So, okay, did I plug my my blog post? I wanted to plug. I already plugged. Uh, um, Evil speaking of the Lord's anointed, but I think one of the most jam-packed. Uh, it's a series of four. Uh, it's it's called The Church Ain't the Kingdom. I did mention yes, that. Yes, you did. Yes, yeah. you did. Anyway, there's a lot of information in there, and I think it, and it also touches on how and why the, the leaders were never anointed by the Lord, modern leaders. So, okay. So, Rock, now, Rock we were, we you were told us a lot else. of Yeah, you told us a lot of things about uh, rumors going around about Denver Snuffer that aren't true. What is true that's going on with Denver Snuffer? What's really happening? Well, he's an attorney who lives and works in Salt Lake City. And okay, you're he, making me yawn here. What's the, what's the good stuff that's happening? The spiritual stuff, the Zion stuff, the temple stuff, the stuff my audience wants to okay, know. Okay, I, I think you mentioned uh, what might be called his magnum opus. It was adapted from a series of 10 lectures that he gave throughout the Wasatch Front um, around 2015 or so. And it's called... Oh my gosh! Was it preserving the restoration? Yeah, thank you. Preserving the restoration. I'm at How that is it? I know Denver like, Snuffer better than you. Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> he, I read he also it. has I a podcast. If you look up the podcast under denversnuffer.com, you'll see his writings and teachings. He's a guy like me who has things he wants to say, and he says them. And that doesn't make him the all-powerful guru. Now, wait a second, wait a second. And here's something I got to do here, okay? Because I got to push back against you. I've done this before on the phone, so you know where I'm going to come from, right? It seems like uh, you and maybe some other members of the movement are of two minds and present two different, I'll say, aspects. I don't want to say faces. That's too much. About Denver Snuffer's role. Because on the one hand, you've spent a lot of time talking about he's – He's not the leader. He's not a prophet. He's not this. He's not that. And uh, all that kind of stuff that you've already talked about, which I know you believe, right? Well, I didn't say he's not a prophet. There's a lot of prophets. He's not the prophet. He's not the leader. Okay. I mean, a prophet, as, 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 and let me quickly get this in, as, uh, see, I've forgotten names. B.H. Roberts. B.H. Roberts says a prophet is essentially a teacher. Yeah, That's but Joseph Smith was a lot more than a teacher. Well, yeah, because Joseph Smith would uh, convey messages he got directly from God, but he would do it in God's words. Let me put it this way. Joseph Smith, okay, I'm just going to set this up for you, all right? Joseph all right. Smith received revelations from God that he wrote down. He translated ancient records, okay, into new scripture, right? He right. said that he saw uh, Jesus Christ, so let's put those three things together, okay? Now, the modern leadership doesn't do any of those three things, or at least not so as you could tell. However, however, Rock, and you know this is true, Denver Snuffer 
claims to do all three of those things just the same as Joseph Smith and unlike the current leaders of the LDS Church. Wait a minute. Claims to see Jesus. He's written yeah. about it and he's talked about it. It's yeah. no secret, right? Right. He has produced scripture. And by that, I'm talking about his uh, translation of the testimony of John. You know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he receives revelations that he writes down, okay? And I, I know that these are these are in the process or actually have been published and voted on or something like that. No. So, so oh, here's okay. my question for you. My question for you is this. Um, if Denver Snuffer does all these things that Joseph Smith did, okay, and I think the things that made Joseph Smith quintessentially a Mormon prophet, if I can put it that way, a Mormon prophet or a prophet and a leader of the church. Why is it that Denver Snuffer and you and other people I talk about are so hesitant about calling Denver Snuffer a prophet as well as Joseph Smith? It's because of the 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 idea of what a prophet is to Mormons today. They think he's the one who's going to make the decisions and going to tell you what you're supposed to do and he's going to run things. Now, He's not the only one who has had a visitation from Jesus Christ. I know of dozens, but all, basically all you have to do is ask for it. And the scriptures teach Joseph, uh, bring, uh, anyone who's interested in this can pick up uh, Denver's book. Uh, Passing on. the Heavenly Gift. Thank you. Passing the Heavenly Gift. I'm here is for you. It? Yes, it was number seven. It's the one that got him next. Oh, actually, okay. it might have been no. in it might have been in an earlier book talking about the second witness or the second comforter or something. Yeah, the second comforter. That's yeah, the okay. Book. Okay. Okay. So he shows how in the scriptures we're expected to ask for this, and that's why a lot of people have gotten it. And you almost said, if you ask for it, you'll get it. Did you say that? Well, kind of. I haven't asked for it, so Rock, I haven't got it. Rock, let's do an experiment right now on the air. Okay. Okay. Would you ask to see Jesus? On the air, and let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> so oh my I have gosh! A, I'm I have sorry. a stumbling block, uh, and it's called Radio Free Mormon. Yeah, I have a stumbling block in, in that, making that request in the first place because I don't think I'm worthy. And what Denver teaches is, you know, worthiness. What we think of as being worthy, that the church teaches us about being worthy, is an entirely different thing. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with all of us, and uh, and so we should seek that. Well, why are but you anyway, denying Jesus what he wants, Rock? Well, I, you know, I can't, again, I've got to get around to uh, to wanting it. And, okay. Uh, well, I want you to know this from me, okay? okay. I'm going to be serious here, all right? The person who is furthest away from God is actually the closest to him. I can believe that. Look, Denver Snuffer is one of the most unlikely people to become uh, a spiritual leader, if you want to call him that. You know, his hobby is, he's a biker, you know. He's, for all I know, he's probably at that biker convention. You mean Harley Davidson? Yeah, yeah. This is his big deal. Denver Snuffer, he rides a hog? Uh, I don't know if it's a Harley, but I think so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's his uh, his passion. So, you know, you don't think of that guy in the same terms. Oh, you know, look, I guess you could call me a prophet in that I'm teaching people. Which brings us back to this whole thing about the long hair. I want to touch on that. I met a guy on my mission. He was the typical, this is the 70s. So this guy... Long hair and a long beard, and he's wearing a robe like uh, like you see in the in the cartoons where the guy's holding a sign, "Repent, the end is near." That kind of guy. And I he he told me his name was 
he went by Brother Michael, and he told me that uh, long hair and a beard is essential if you want to be in tune with God, because he says, uh, and I thought this was completely wacky, but he says, your, your, your hairs act like little radars. You know, it's just completely wacky stuff. But then years later, I'm reading about the uh, Navajo trackers that were, uh, that were recruited by the army during the war. And they had long hair, of course. They were, that was their, their style. And their long hair was part of their spiritual whatever tradition well when they were when they all their hair was cut off they lost the ability to track they lost whatever spiritual insight whatever genetic or however you want to put it uh skills they had so they allowed these guys to have long hair and they were able to track again Hmm. it's like orrin porter rockwell when he got his hair cut he lost the ability to kill people I didn't hear that, but I just hear her. <laughs> you know, half the time, I don't know when you're kidding. No, the story is he cut off his hair. But you so know what? He lost Vern, his protection. Val, Val Brickerhoff has written an interesting book about the Nazarites. And what the Nazarites do, did was they went through a period of repentance. And during this period, they let their, they grew their hair long. Right. And, uh, and had beards. And uh, anyway, people ask me about my beard. So here's the deal. Here's the story of my beard. I grew it because I ran into a guy when Connie was having uh, some kind of MRI. He was had really long hair, but on his badge, he was the technician on his badge. Um, he had long hair. And I said, what's the deal? You used to, used to have short hair. He said, I found out that I can donate my hair to children to be made children with cancer so they can make wigs out of them. So I thought that was a good idea. And I grew my hair long and I had it cut off and I sent it in to this company that makes wigs for charity. Then I decided I'm going to do it again. Well, I've just kind of come to the point where this is kind of my look. I don't know. I'm not married to it, but um, eventually I'll probably cut them off again and donate them again. But it's sort of, I, I'm more in, I'm more inclined to the views of Brother Michael. That's what I'm getting around to. Brother Michael, I think there's something about having longer hair that uh, that works. Okay, so it's wacky, but there I am. So that's why I look like this. Well, actually, this is almost where I want to end. I'm going to give you a couple more minutes. I don't want to end. <laughs> all good things must come to an end, and so must this podcast. Okay. I have one more thing to discuss. No, hang on, hang on, because I want to say, I want to make this point here, okay? do this, yeah. I want to make this point, because I think the most important thing that you said, and you said a lot of important things in these two hours, is about your growing your hair to cut it off so that it can be made into a wig for somebody else, because I think that captures, in its essence, true Christianity, or as you might put it on your blog, pure Mormonism. Hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't cost anything except your reputation because people think I'm weird. People think I'm trying to. They're going like to think that anyway, Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Some people think I'm trying to look like a prophet. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not even trying to be an Azrite yet, but I think that's a good idea, and I'll probably go that route. Well, tell us in the last five minutes what you have planned for the future. Oh, gosh. I just want to die and <laughs> get it over with. Excuse me. I picked that bad time to take a sip of my Diet Coke right there. <laughs> Up in the nose. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I just want to die. <laughs> well, that's that sounds like an interesting plan for the future. You okay, just want I'll tell to you die? about my future plans, but I want to touch on something that you talked about in your interview with John Delenn. And no, you, hang on a second. Hang on okay. a second. 
But you don't don't why cut do you, me why, off before I get this in, okay? Okay. Why do you want it? Why do you just want to die? Oh, oh, no, I just want to return. I mean, this, uh, uh, and so does Connie. Connie's in a lot of pain and misery, and I'm not doing that well myself. I figure I, I, I have less than ten years left on this earth, and uh, I don't want to die. I want to transform, you know. So, and so does Connie. We just hope that uh, Connie goes first, because she'd be in a world of hurt if I left, because I take care of her. Yeah. So, uh, okay. what do I want to do? You know what I want to do? Okay, this brings us back. I got to tell you, Connie and I have been drifting apart. What? Connie and I have been drifting apart, and here's where it is. In only one area. I mean, we're close as two peas in a pod every other way, but I am no longer allowed to choose which movies we're going to watch together. I have proven in her eyes to be incompetent at that because I want to watch Three Little Girls in Blue with June Haver from 1945, and I want to watch uh, I want to watch a bunch of Hollywood musicals, and she doesn't. She wants to watch other things, so I'm not allowed to choose anymore. I have to watch these by myself. And uh, film noir, kind of into that. So if you want, if you're asking what I want to do with the rest of my life, I want to uh, I want to catch up with the things that I that I didn't get around to. Oh my gosh, Three Little Girls in Blue is such an amazing musical, and the the uh, costumes are fabulous. Which brings us to the point. <laughs> Rock, that I my father. Heard, I have never heard of this musical, and that's saying something. It's it's. Oh, it's really remarkable, and Fox Fox owned the rights to the original play, and they they essentially refilmed the the movie four times, different locations, but it's essentially the same story. Who's in it? Uh, June Haver. Uh, I got it right June, behind June here. June Haver. Yeah, June Haver and uh, Vera Ellen. Oh, there, Vera Ellen, I know. There, there are three there are three girls who who uh, work uh, who live on a, a chicken ranch. And their aunt dies, who owns the ranch, and they decide to use the uh, inheritance, a couple of thousand dollars, to go to Atlantic City and pretend to be rich. So June Haver is the rich woman, and the, her two sisters are her maid and her secretary, and the idea is to meet rich husbands. And, it, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> and it was, Vivian Blaine's in it, too. Yeah, the last time it was remade was How to Marry a Millionaire. It wasn't a musical this time. But the pre pre previous to that, uh, Betty Grable had starred in a version which was called... Anyway, I don't care. I don't, That's but okay. I got Three Blind Mice and then Moon Over My Yes, yes. And then Three Little Girls in Blue. Nobody knows this but me. Well, I mean, I've never known another person who, well, I have, I was, I was, uh, I majored in musical theater to my everlasting, uh, Oh, embarrassing. Shame. Yes. By the way, Google my is my father, friend, just so you know. I learned from, long after my father was dead. I learned from a, from a relative that he was worried that I was gay. Because I left home after my mission and I moved to Utah and I was still in the musical theater. But one time, my dad comes into, he walks past my bedroom. I'm sitting in the dark listening to Judy Garland, my Judy Garland record. Uh, she's singing Rainbow. And I just began weeping for her because of her life. I, gee, I own four or five biographies of Judy Garland. I did not know at the time that Judy Garland had been adopted as a gay icon. But my dad sees me weeping, listening to Judy Garland. And, and he didn't see me. And I was majoring in musical theater and, uh, you know, whatever. But when I brought my wife home to meet my parents, they were ecstatic. I was going to get married to a woman. I bet they were. So how do you feel about Liza Minnelli? Uh, I don't care for her. 
I don't okay. care for okay. You're safe. You're safe. Yeah, I don't care for musical theater at the time I was majoring in musical theater. I was. I, I'm interested in musical theater of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and uh, just like I'm interested in comic books of old, and I have no interest in what's going on now. But um, so basically, your goal in life now is from here on out to have Connie pass away, so you can watch the movies that you want. Gonna, <laughs> well, I can still watch these movies by myself. She says, "Have fun watching it by yourself." Whenever I bring something up, well, but uh, oh, you got to catch three little girls in blue. Great costumes and in color. I saw this when I was a child with my sister, and the thing that I remembered from it, they they went to this hotel in Atlantic City, and they said, "Oh my, they got this huge suite." And they said, oh, this is going to cost us $9 a night. <laughs> and, I, and at the time, I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of money <laughs> because I'm nine years old, you know. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but you know, this was uh, like a $5,000 a night suite today. Right. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, I really like, I like Hollywood costumes. Somebody asked me not long ago if anything ticks me off, if anything ever – Gets let's, me upset. Let's end and I'll tell you what it is. Makes Rock Waterman mad. Yeah. I'll tell you what it is. I'm still upset that they bulldozed the MGM backlot and they turned it into condominiums. Now, granted, they were no longer using the backlot, but it's like a museum. You don't destroy the museum. And I, I, I learned not long ago that the Disney uh, Disney Studios had done the same. Now, I was lucky enough to have seen, walked both studios. I, I just walked around on both, in the Boneyard. But, uh, you know, over over at the river, the uh, I, I, I recall the uh, showboat was tattered and flapping in the wind. Nothing was kept up, and they were getting ready to destroy it. But it, to me, the MGM backlot, any movie backlot is a museum that should have been untouched. And that's my little, my little beef, even though I honor the the rights of property owners. They shouldn't have done it. I'm still mad. There's a, well, there's a great book called, uh, my local library has it called uh, MGM Studios, and it walks you through every every building and every uh, every building in the studio itself and then the, the entire back lot. Wonderful book. So, where were we? Oh, yeah, I wanted to tell you about something. Okay, Rock, you, Rock this is going to be the final, final part of the, okay. the podcast. You've That's fine. I got nothing 60 else. seconds. Okay. Okay. Are we really on a time? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. You, you said your sticking point. I am anyway. Point. In your interview with John DeLynn, you said your sticking point in the Book of Mormon was that there was an error in, the, in, in uh, Isaiah that everybody today knows is an error, error but, it, but it made it into the Book of Mormon. And I'm going to explain why that is. When Joseph Smith... I don't recall what it is exactly that I said. I, I don't um, recall what, what the particular oh, What I talked is. about was a smoking gun about the Book of Mormon being a 19th century production was its uh, copious amounts of using King James Bible passages, yeah, including yeah. Isaiah, most I always notably hated Isaiah. That. Well, I asked okay. Denver about that. And he, says, as, he says at the time, that's the only way people would uh, uh, um, accept something as scripture if it was written like scriptures. But you'll, you'll be happy to know that the, uh, the, this Jewish version of the Book of Mormon I told you about is not in the King James you know, it's not written in the Jacobian style. But anyway, so here's what happened. When, Joe, when, when the Book of Mormon was being printed, a fellow by the name of John Gilbert was the actual presser. And he gave an interview years later when he was asked how it was done. And every time, so what, what he was given, he was given a handwritten manuscript um, 
in Joseph's handwriting that was hastily written every day, you know, a chapter or two, and it was brought in by uh, either, uh, you know, sometimes Oliver Cowdery, sometimes someone else, and it was very difficult to read. So every time it looked like a large passage of scripture was coming, he would just pick up his copy of the King James Bible, set it on the rack above the press, and just copy that. So he, it was like he'd say, oh, shoot, man, are you kidding me? Another big, long passage of scripture. So, so he would, uh, he copied it from the King James. That's why the King James errors are in the Book of Mormon. Um, are you still there? Yeah. Can I push back on that a little bit? Sure. Okay. Well, do we have the time? Just to make this comment, because I, I can't let that canard float across the lake unmolested. <laughs> canard, of course, being French. Right. Right. Anyway, no, because obviously, I mean, the printing was done off the copy, or excuse me, the, the, there's the original manuscript, and then there's the printer's manuscript. Yes. Printer's manuscript is made from the original manuscript, copied off by Oliver Cowdery, so it was the printer's manuscript that was taken to the printer, hence right. the name printer's manuscript the print the printer's manuscript still exists uh not the whole thing no basically all of it the original manuscript there's maybe around 25 percent of it that still exists because it was put in the cornerstone of the nauvoo house and you know the water leaked in and bad things happened but the 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 printer's manuscript basically all of it still exists so i would think it would be a very simple matter to compare the printer's manuscript okay all right Okay. I'd like to. I'd like to see that. Would you like but to John make a Gilbert friendly? Says, would you like to what, make a friendly wager right now? I'll give you good odds. Uh, no, I, I, I don't care to wager. I'm, but I'm interested in finding out. But okay. But because I'm going to bet that in the the printer's manuscript, the Isaiah chapters are there, just like the King James version Bible. Okay. It was a, it was a minor error, so it may be there, but it'd be interesting to see that. Okay. So yeah, I'd like to find that. Um, but. But Gilbert himself says, I copied it right from my copy of the Bible. You've got to show that to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think I touched on it in one of my blog posts, and somebody asked me where I saw that, and I said, I can't remember. But I, I can't remember. Look. Dang it. Well, I know. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. But I did yeah. read it, okay? I'm not saying it's gospel truth, but I did read him saying, basically, every time he came across Isaiah, he'd gone, not again. And then he just use the printed copy of the Bible because it was easier for him to read. Okay. Interesting theory. I want to see some substantiation and I hope you'll do that for us. Okay. Well, I hope somebody uh, who knows where that is, will find it. I, I'm not into digging things up anymore. I've kind of gotten tired of research, but I'll look for it okay. when I find the time. Rock Waterman. Rock. Yes. There? yes thank I'm you. Here. Rock Waterman. Thank you so much for taking this time out of your schedule to spend two hours with us on Radio Free Mormon talking about you, your life, your history, your interests, your passions, your loves, and even your hates. Well, it's been an honor, and I'm finally going to be on the map now that I'm on Radio Free Mormon's show. I am going to make you a star. Thankfully. About time. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And everybody, everybody, I hope that you will go to Pure Mormonism. And is that... Uh, I think if you just put Rock Waterman, just do a Google search, Rock no, Waterman, to, comma, have to, Pure Mormonism. Google is Pure Mormonism, but the actual URL is puremormonism.blogspot.com. It's Blogspot. I thought it was something a little different. Yeah, so go to that. Please uh, read a lot of what it is that um, 
Brock Waterman has to say, especially the ones uh, that he plugs specifically in this episode. There's lots of great writing, lots of great ideas there. Um, Rock, thank you once again for being on the show. I wish you luck in all your future endeavors and hope you get to watch all the movies that you want to watch in the near future. Thank Until- you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go watch the Dolly Sisters today. With, okay, super. With, super. Uh, with Betty Grable. You like movies about sisters for some reason. We don't need to get into that. <laughs> I understand Joseph Smith did too. Oh, stop it. <laughs> All right, and, brother. Hey, great and, talking to you. I hope we can do this again. Oof. Thank you. I keep trying to get my sign-off line. Oh, 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 oh. I, I, so I say nothing more. Okay, got it. Are you, Bye, by, the way, by the way, I was driving into work today, and I was had the iPod on shuffle songs, and guess what came up? But Neil Hefty's famous theme from Batman. Oh. So I may close with that, just in honor of you and your love for cool, DC Comics, cool. okay? I won't, I won't say anything more, so you can close off. Very good. Here we go. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.